Paddy. Hello, everyone. Oh, yeah, you're not allowed to talk, that's right. Um, uh, well, my name's Paul. Uh, thanks, Kurt. Uh, I'm one of the student ministers here. Really, really glad to be here with you all. Um, let me pray before we look at God's word together. Let's pray. Father, prepare our hearts, uh, our ears first to hear your word and our hearts and minds to receive it in such a way that we would walk away changed. Amen. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. People shouted these words at the top of their lungs. They laid down their cloaks flat on the ground and in the mud as if they were rolling out a red carpet for the entry of the king. They did this to welcome Jesus as he entered Jerusalem. That's a flashback to what's known as the triumphal entry of Jesus. It happened only five days prior to the tragic events we read about in Mark 15. And where we've arrived is unthinkable. Everybody loves a good rags-to-riches story. Uh, They show that unthinkable things can happen in people's lives, uh, where they go from complete poverty to prosperity. I googled top rags-to-riches stories. They're all about um, boring billionaires, of course. So I decided I'd I'd just share one of my favourites. Roald Dahl's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Charlie Bucket goes from rags to riches when he finds Willy Wonka's golden ticket in a chocolate bar. I sometimes imagine finding a golden ticket in my Cadbury bar. Um, But don't worry, I know it's fiction. But let's just imagine Charlie Bucket is a real person. Um, A flashback in Charlie's life would only show how unthinkable it was for this child who lived in poverty to inherit a chocolate factory. The flashback in Jesus' life, however, it's, it's unthinkable, but on a totally different level. Last week we saw how unthinkable it was for Jesus' disciples uh, that one of the twelve would betray him. It was unthinkable that Jesus Christ would be arrested by the Romans. It must have perplexed his disciples so much that every one of them fled. Even Peter, though he told Jesus he would stand alongside him till death, it wasn't long till he denied Christ. Because what happened to his master was unthinkable. Only five days ago, he was welcomed into Jerusalem with hosannas, but here in chapter 15, he's bound and handed over to Pilate. The trajectory that uh, Jesus' disciples were on was so promising. They'd recognised he was the Christ, God's promised king. He'd entered the city of King David. This is it, right? This, This has to be the moment. The next step should have been his public enthronement as king of the Jews. But the reality was that the king of the Jews was bound like a criminal. What's their perception of their master now? This is the question that I I, I want us to think about today. 
Um, as we come to think about the crucifixion, what is our perception of Jesus? What do we see in Christ dying a brutal death on the cross? Our first step in answering uh, this question will be to look at what Pilate thinks of Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews, Pilate asked in verse 2. And Jesus answered him, you have said so. He's trying to make sense of why this man has been arrested. But Jesus' answer makes things tricky for him. He has to work it out on his own. He hears the long list of accusations the chief priests bring against him. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. He saw the list of accusations and thought, this doesn't line up. And it's like he'd already declared Jesus to be innocent, but just needed some way to release him. So Mark says in verse 6 that he finds some way, and uh, we read in verse 6, at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate uh, to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. Mark gives us the impression that the crowd may not have necessarily felt that hostile towards Jesus. But at the stirring up of the chief priests, they consented to having a murderer on the loose. They abandoned all sense of justice and quickly joined in the pursuit of getting rid of Jesus. But this still doesn't fix Pilate's problem. So he asks the crowd again in verse 12, Then what shall I do with this man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. What a disgrace this must have been to the nation of Israel that they would substitute a man they call their king, king of the Jews, with a murderer. Not only that, the Jews had handed over their king to be treated with utter contempt and dishonour. At the hands of the Roman soldiers, we read that Christ became an object of ridicule. As Jesus was led to Golgotha to be crucified, Mark gives us hints that throughout this whole time, Jesus was suffering, even before his hands were hammered to the cross. And when they reached Golgotha, they crucified him. Mark tells us in verse 25 that this happened at 9 a.m. 
And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews, and with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. What is our perception of Christ at the end of this brutal episode? If you and I were one of his followers then, what would we think? How would we feel? Christ was substituted for Barabbas. It is unthinkable that Christ should receive punishment deserving of the worst of sinners, right? God's anointed king received floggings suited for murderers and hung on a cross with criminals on either side. The honorary title, King of the Jews, was so stripped of its honour, it was now Jesus' criminal charge. What did those who passed by think of all this? Mark says in verse 29, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. Clearly, these, people who, uh, these were people who listened to Jesus' teaching, who now used his own words to taunt him, They saw his miracles in feeding thousands and healing Bartimaeus from blindness. Now they took joy out of him suffering on the cross. But even though all we can can hear is their mocking, I think their words show us that they were also perplexed. Christ being on the cross was an unthinkable thing, even to those who put him up there. Jesus was a man who spoke with godlike authority and performed signs that showed divine power. A man with that kind of status and power doesn't belong on the cross. So save yourself, come down from the cross, if you're really that. Maybe they felt self-justified seeing him remain on the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another. They said, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. The chief priests and scribes too, I'm sure, felt self-justified. Even though they had seen that Jesus had God's power, Jesus remaining on the cross to them was an absolute relief. We might be quick to disregard these mockers who are clearly the villains in the story. Nobody would imagine putting themselves in their shoes. But even their perceptions have shown us how unthinkable it was to see God's anointing, anointed king on the cross. Back in chapter 8, when uh, people were, were still trying to work out who he was, Jesus turns to his disciples and says in verse 27, Who do people say I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. 
The disciples perceived him uh, back then to be God's anointed king. But what about now? If we were bystanders uh, among the crowd, what would our perception be of a crucified king? Is Jesus on the cross still Christ? If Jesus is God's anointed king, why is he hanging on the cross? But we come to see that Mark has been preparing us for this all along. In fact, immediately after Peter recognised that Jesus is the Christ, Mark tells us, chapter 8, verse 31, that Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. Jesus predicted his death at various other times too. Just before his triumphal entry in in Jerusalem, chapter 10, verse 33, he says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. Mark's story has been preparing us for this moment all along. Jesus himself knew even the kind of death he was about to face. Uh, Remember remember his prayer in uh, the Garden of Gethsemane? He prayed to the Father, Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus knew that what he was about to face, it it was more than just a death at the hands of his enemies, but that he was about to drink the cup of God's wrath. And that's what unfolds in the next few verses as we look at Christ in the eyes of the centurion. At midday, while Jesus was on the cross, darkness fell over the whole land for three hours. Imagine that. And at 3 p.m., Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus has gone from being forsaken by his friends and his disciples to now being forsaken by God. Robert Smith, a theologian, describes this scene saying that amidst the darkness that signals God's displeasure, it seems as if Jesus is absolutely alone, without people and without God. In verse 35, we see the bystanders who try to make sense of Jesus' cry. They say, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled the sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. The bystanders perhaps were mocking him. But I think it's also likely that they were just thinking that Jesus was calling for some kind of miraculous rescue. Only to see that he uttered a a loud cry and breathed his last. Jesus Christ 
went to the cross not just to suffer, but to die. If Jesus was to save himself or to call for some kind of rescue, it would mean that he cannot save others. While people mocked him and challenged him to come down from the cross, he willingly remained up there on the cross so that they might be saved. Isaiah prophesied about him, saying, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. The Son of God left his heavenly throne and humbled himself and became human. He humbled himself even to death on the cross so that many sinners like you and me would be forgiven. In Mark 10 verse 45, uh, Jesus said about himself that he came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That ransom that he paid on the cross made a way for us to be reconciled with God. Verse 38 gives us a picture of how effective Christ's death was for our forgiveness. So effective that God tore the temple curtain in two from top to bottom. This signified that those who are saved by the blood of Christ can now freely draw near to God as he draws near to them. The barrier has been removed. In verse 39, Mark turns our attention to the centurion standing by who was observing everything that was going on. And, And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way, he breathed his last. He said, Truly this man was the Son of God. Jesus, dead on the cross, left a very unexpected impression on the centurion, don't you think? Perhaps he was in awe at the darkness of God's wrath that filled the sky, and in awe hearing Jesus cry to his father at the top of his lungs. He was in awe at the way Jesus Christ died. Mark leaves us to wonder as to why exactly the centurion thought that he was truly the son of God. But what he says begs the question, why is the son of God dead? Why would God do this? Because it's the only way. It's the only way that we can be saved. What's our perception of Jesus on the cross? What do we see in Christ dying a brutal death on the cross? I see a real life rags to riches story. A flashback in my own life will show you that I lived a God forsaken life. A life of sin with unbearable consequences after death. But Christ left his heavenly riches and became God forsaken in my place and your place. 
and died on the cross. He emptied himself in order that we might be filled, in order that you and I might receive the riches of eternal life in his heavenly kingdom. I think the best rags to riches stories are of sinners like you and me where the unthinkable happened. Christ died so that we would have life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are in awe just as the centurion was in awe. We're in awe to know that Jesus suffered and died because he loved us. We're in awe to know that you did this in order to draw near to us. Amen. Well, friends, yeah, if you want to turn your chairs back around, that'd be great. Paul and I have got our physical distance thing going on, uh, uh, but it's great to have Paul not just opening God's word for us tonight, but also um, taking the opportunity to um, just reflect on some of the things that we've said tonight. And... uh, Exciting, isn't it? <laughs> You're trying to do little shadows on the, on the wall up there. It's all right. Put the children down the front, okay? <laughs> uh, a couple of things before we get started. Um, I did want to say um, that uh, after, after we meet here this evening and we get, head off to our groups, I just wanted to quickly mention that our, for our, uh, those who are meeting in different house groups and uh, need to know exactly where you've got to go and all that kind of thing, we're going to get those who are hosting those to just meet out the side on, the, on Wild Street here. So go and meet your house church person out there who's looking after things. And then um, the other thing is for the youth, I th- said you're going to meet across here. You're actually going to meet in the hall out the back. Thanks, Cooper. So just uh, let me point those things out. Um, but thank you for the questions that have been coming through. And uh, again, thanks for uh, opening God's word with us tonight, Paul. It's Incredible passage, isn't it, really, um, as we reflect on all that God has done for us in Jesus. Um, I did want to say a quick shout-out to Tim, uh, uh, Tim uh, Nichols, who is uh, watching from Malaysia this evening. So Tim and Suman, who are uh, one of the couples that we support in ministry in Malaysia. Uh, so they're actually been watching in the night, so it's great to have those guys joining us as well. So good day to Tim and Suman. Um, let me uh, ask you a question, mate. Um, what made the guard, so from Roger Lindeback, what made the guard say that Jesus is the Son of God? Uh, I think we don't, we don't know exactly what made the guard say, uh, but uh, we can kind of see that he, well, what, what the text says, um, sorry, I should have had this open. Uh, Mark 15. So it says, and when the centurion who, was stand, who stood facing him, so he was standing facing Jesus, uh, saw that in this way he breathed his last. So there was something about the way Jesus died 
uh, and perhaps all the kind of events and all the things that he was observing as Jesus was being led up to the um, cross um, that made him ponder and think about, oh, this, this is a man who Pilate was kind of seeing him as an innocent person um, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and, and this is how he died. Um, yeah, he actually, uh, I guess he had this confession uh, and he called out saying, truly, this was the son of God. Um, yeah, we don't, we don't actually know whether the centurion was a Christian all of a sudden or, or anything like that. We, I don't think we're told that. Is that right? I don't think yeah, we're told that. That's right, yeah. Um, but we do know that something impacted, something that he saw about Jesus' death impacted him mm. um, really strongly. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, that um, it's so often the people who ought to recognise Jesus who keep missing it, but guys like the centurion yeah. recognise something significant. Yeah, about and Pilate as well. Yeah, yeah and Pilate yeah, as well, yeah. Right, yeah. Um, Naomi's asked us a couple of questions. Uh, mm. The first one is, uh, why do they think he's calling for Elijah? Yeah, um, good question. I think I remember kind of looking into this and... Um, it's so if you remember from what uh, I read from verse so chapter 8 and how people were kind of perceiving him to be a prophet um, and Elijah's a, 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 a prophet who was taken up um, is that right yeah so he was taken up uh, as in like he didn't die uh, and um, so they kind of just saw Elijah as this uh, figure who was going to come back and rescue Jesus. Um, and I guess they were just trying to make sense of um, what he was, uh, who he was calling to um, when he's, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, that's that. That. Yeah, I think, yeah. Yeah, Elijah certainly was one of the great ones. You notice even uh, when Jesus asked the disciples, who is, who do people say that I am? Some yeah. actually think it's, it's Elijah come back from it. You know, right, back yeah. and that sort of thing. And so Elijah is always one of those incredible mm. um, uh, men of God mm. um, that they had all kinds of understandings about what would happen with him as a result of him not yeah. actually, do, no record of him actually dying. Mm. And so, um, yeah, I think you're right in what you're saying. Yeah. Mate, look, another question from um, a person who's very dear to my heart, from uh, Jed, anyway. <laughs> um, yeah. Look, it's wonderful, isn't it? So why, why is this the only way that we could be saved? That's a good question, isn't it? Why is this the only way that we could be saved? Yeah, it's a really great question, actually, because I think, um, so I guess it comes down to the uh, seriousness of our sin against God and um, the break in our relationship with him um, that, uh, you know, you've probably heard Jed's there, probably heard of the sacrificial system that uh, that was an important part of God's people being uh, yeah you know in relationship with God um, and uh, yeah and but but that really didn't solve the problem um, it was just uh, a temporary thing that a foreshadowing of what Jesus did on the cross and that was an ultimate sacrifice um, that uh, yeah that came that's right, as, as a way to, uh, I guess, atone for uh, all, you know, all sins, not just um, every year, um, that cycle that happens, yeah, mm. uh, in the sacrificial system. Yeah. Thanks, mate. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's important, isn't it, mm. to reflect on the reality that um, 
our sin is so serious. Mm. Our offence against God deserves judgment. Mm. And for us, I mean, God can't just kind of sweep our sin under the carpet mm. and pretend it doesn't matter. Mm. I mean, Jesus himself, when he prays in the garden of Gethsemane, says, you know, if there's another way, then take this cup from me. Yeah. And God says, but he says, no, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And that is because um, the judgment, you know, the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life. And so um, the means by which we come back into relationship with God is that our sin needs to be dealt with. Um, judgment is the death of the person who is the sinner. And Jesus stands in our place as our representative. Um, and it's incredible, isn't it? So, uh, mate, look, just um, a couple of others. A lot of little bits and pieces in this passage, isn't there? Yeah, and um, right. one of them is, um, what is the significance of verse 23 and 36? What does the sponge with sour wine signify? Why is it mentioned? Yeah, I think it's, um, so there's that one and then there's another one with the wine mixed with myrrh uh, as well a few verses earlier. So they're probably just uh, customs that they had back then to, uh, I guess, uh, either speed up the death of the person on the cross or, I guess, slow it down, depending on what they wanted um, to do to the person being crucified. so the wine mixed with myrrh, I imagine that that's something to kind of, uh, uh, kind of deal with the pain or whatever to kind of just make, make them not feel it as much. But I think the sour wine is maybe something that accentuates the pain. Um, yeah, I think that's just the observation. Okay. Yeah, good, Matt. There's lots of little details in there in this mm. particular passage. And yeah. there's a couple of questions here. Um, that I think are asking similar things, so from Naomi and uh, Nathan. Uh, to what extent did the Father forsake Jesus? Mm. Okay, you know, what's going on with the Trinity there? Mm-hmm. In what sense did the Father forsake Jesus? And I think Nathan kind of is talking about, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is he actually stating that he is alone? Or is he saying that Psalm 22, which is what he quotes, mm-hmm. uh, is true for him as it was for David when David was suffering but still praised God and acknowledged that he was with him. And so you've got that Psalm 22 reference, but mm. the question from Naomi, you know, to what extent did the Father forsake Jesus? Yeah, I think with that uh, line that Jesus says, so the, yes, he quotes the Psalm, uh, Psalm 22, um, but I think it's more than just him uh, kind of quoting something um, to, yeah, without any significance to it, I guess. It's not... Um, so I think the significance there is that he uh, entered our situation. So we, we are God forsaken. And um, what we're being shown here is that Jesus entered our situation of God forsakenness. Um, and uh, yeah, and I guess that question of what happened to the Trinity, I don't think anything happened to the Trinity. Well, I, there's, you know, there's lots of, um, is, Trinity is very complicated uh, thing for us to grasp in a lot of ways, but uh, we know that uh, God is, um, yeah, nothing changed in the Trinity, but something was, something happened on the cross uh, between uh, Jesus and his father. So there was a, there was a forsakenness in the relationship. Um, so, and I think that is really significant. It tells us how far God went um, to save us. Uh, and how far Jesus went to save us. Um, yeah. Thanks, Paul. Mate, there's a bunch of questions here. I don't think we're going to get through them all tonight, mate. Um, 
Um, but I'll just, I'll just here's another one. Maybe this will be the last one. And uh, if if we don't get to your question tonight, uh, then we'll do something about answering them through the week anyway. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, Marike asks, when the darkness came, was Jesus actually alone and separated from God, or did he just feel like that when the darkness came? Uh, yeah, I, th I think just kind of back to what I was just saying earlier, I think uh, Jesus wasn't just saying those words of, uh, I feel forsaken, um, God, why, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, I think there was a real um, forsakenness that he felt. Um, and so it, the darkness was there, and then three hours later he said that line. Um, and the darkness is seen as, so in the Old Testament, various times, like if you remember in uh, Egypt, one of the plagues was darkness. Um, and that was a sign, one of the signs of God's judgment over the Egyptians. And this, is, uh, this can be seen in that way as well. So God, God's judgment, God's displeasure was on that, um, in that area, in that region. Um, and, and so, yeah, uh, so God's judgment was on Jesus and Jesus felt a very real God forsakenness in that on the cross. Yeah. Mm. Mate, look, I, I, I was going to leave it there, but I think there's, there's one more question. You've just talked about the darkness issue, okay? Um, uh, one of the other things that uh, came up this morning as well, and, um, and, I, and is here as, again this evening, is you know, what response did the Jewish people have to the curtain in the temple being torn in two? Mm. I think that was another one of those kind of markers that were quite significant in some way. Yeah. Um, I don't know whether we know what the Jewish people's response was, but what, what response did the Jewish people, as far as you know, have to the curtain being torn in two? Yeah, um, and it's just a, like it, it's just one line, but it's so massive in some ways. Like um, it, it really represents, um, you know, what what uh, Jesus' death accomplished for us. Um, and the, so the temple curtain. Uh, is that um, so in the temple there were various kind of um, there was the outer courts and the inner you know kind of um, sanctuary and then there was the holy of holies um, and the temple curtain was something that only um, yeah priests could kind of approach that and um, and th there was a lot you know there was a lot of ceremonies that they had to uh, kind of go through to be able to end up in there um, and so uh, what what this meant was that there was now free access to God without a need of a priest because ultimately Jesus is our priest he's the one who stands before us and God and so um, if if Jesus advocates um, for you or me um, and so he's actually our priest and we have free access to God through him um, and so, yeah, that's, but with the temple curtain being ripped, it's basically saying there is now no, no need for the temple, um, the building itself or the curtain or, the, or any physical barrier or any barrier. Uh, there's no barrier between us and God if we have Jesus as our advocate. Yeah, yeah it's um, one of those things that is, 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 you know, quite amazing because the, the big curtain was a massive curtain. It was thick um, and it was a big stay out, you don't belong in here, you can't come in, right? Yeah. And so it was just incredible, isn't it, that, uh, that at the moment of Jesus' death, yeah. entrance yeah. into God's presence becomes possible for those who have their trust in the Lord Jesus. Mm. Incredible. Mm. Um, so I remember someone talking to me this week about how that was the moment that they realised that they could be confident 
that they had a relationship with God and that mm. they were sure about it. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Very good. I'm going to leave it there. Um, but thanks so much for opening God's Thank word you. with us tonight. There's, there's so much in this passage that ought to warm our hearts and challenge us, you know. Um, it, all of us, in some sense, are Barabbas, aren't we? Mm. We're the guys that have... I mean, it's not just Barabbas who's killed people. The people who were saying, Hosanna, mm. blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord, mm. just five days later are saying, crucify him. Mm. So... Um, it's incredible that God, in his great love, has uh, uh, sent Jesus to the cross who died willingly in our place. Well, friends, um, I think the, uh, the words that ring out to me as I come to the end of our time together tonight are the ones from Mark chapter 15, verses 37 to 9. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Yes, he was, friends. And uh, more than they knew at the time, but not more than we now know. Jesus is the son of God, once the servant of the world, as we just sang, now in victory reigning. Praise the one who saved us. Surely that should be our response as we go from this place tonight. Um, friends, uh, remember, no mingling. When you get up, you've got to leave the building. Meet your uh, house church people out the side here and youth over the back for some pizza. Uh, thanks, guys, for coming. See you again next week. <laughs>